Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I want to bring in Tom Keen now, my co-anchor from Davos, Switzerland, at the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum. I imagine the focus is squarely, though thousands of miles away on Washington today there, Tom. Yeah, it's an interesting day. This is an experiment of a Davos that has been Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and a great shift due to the modern schedule to Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and to see who will be here today. It's a very nice turnout at the World Economic Forum, but of course, here in a few hours, let's mark it as five hours, David Gura, all eyes will turn to Washington at least for a moment. Someone that will be wash, uh, watching Washington. Of course, she's been affiliated, I would suggest, with Democratic politics over the years. (laughs) Laura Tyson of the University of California, Berkeley, who probably has had a number of people call. Hi, Mm -hmm. how is the faculty at Berkeley this week? (laughs) And, uh, of course, with her public service with the administration of uh, President Clinton. Professor Tyson, wonderful to have you here again. I think one of the great conundrums, which has been stated through the Stavos, is we want to make America great again, but our economic statistics, as Michael McKee mentioned a bit ago, are pretty darn good. Mm-hmm. How do we get to the people and assist the people at the margin that voted for President Trump? I think that it is uh, a, a significant challenge for uh, anyone because part of uh, the problems confronting some of those voters are sectoral shifts in the economy. Part of them are technological shifts in the economy uh, to the extent that those voters believe that uh, basically calling out companies to bring manufacturing back to the U.S. would bring jobs back to the U.S. I think that is largely a mistake. I think if manufacturing does come back to the U.S., it's going to come back with much less employment because of technology. So I think it actually is very hard to do, and I actually think that many of the voters who voted for uh, President-elect, soon to be President Trump, will actually see things that really matter to them uh, mm-hmm. be uh, cut back, and I would start and uh, there with health. Well, health with health care is, is the Affordable Care Act, and we had Peter Orzag with us and Douglas Elmendorf, mm-hmm. uh, both with the Congressional Budget Office, right. and that bombshell report, which I, I read the full disclosure, folks, I read the executive summary. Cut me some slack. I read the executive summary. <laughs> it's cold. It's cold. Well. Not the whole thing. So, yes. But come on, this is serious, serious Very stuff serious. Right. about I don't want to get my opinion in there. Professor Tyson, what is the difference between abruptly adjusting any health care policy versus phasing it in or thinking about it in a measured way? Well, well, first of all, you have to have some understanding of where 
your what you're phasing in too. So so far, all we really have is the repeal of something we know about and the promise of something we really don't know about. So we can't even judge the transition without knowing the goal. I do think, uh, and the CBO report uh, pointed this out, if you actually were to repeal without a path of transition, gradual, to a new location, you really would result in a dramatic increase in the number of uninsured and also a very dramatic increase in the price of insurance because you cannot tell the insurance industry you must take care of pre-existing conditions, you must cover kids who live at home to the age of 26. But by the way, we're not increasing the size of the insured pool. We're not requiring that people with lower health risk buy insurance. The cost of providing that kind of insurance with a smaller, uh, less risky, more risky pool is going to jump. That's what the C... And that is so... That's so clear to the experts in the healthcare industry. Regardless of where your position comes out in terms of do you like affordable care or not, I think experts in the industry know that if you just repeal and you don't have a plan to move forward and you keep in those things that people like, you're going to get mm-hmm. a huge jump in the price and you're going to get a collapse in coverage. David Gurr in New York, Tom Keen in Davos, of course, our complete inaugural coverage through the morning. Look for that on Bloomberg at Radio. With us, Laura Tyson, uh, former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors under William Jefferson uh, Clinton. Uh, I have noticed the graceful exit of one Jason Furman over yes. the last number of days. He's doing it with style yes. and dignity. What does a chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors do when they're kicked out the door? (laughs) Well, you know, uh, with change in administrations, uh, that does happen. Uh, They're moved out gracefully in this case, as you said about Jason. Uh, Oftentimes what's interesting is the, the staff economists have been chosen for more than a year. So usually the incoming chairman is actually working with a staff that has been chosen by the outgoing chairman, and that will, I think, largely be the case here. Um, The economic report of the president for 2017 was written by the outgoing Council of Economic Advisors. So that's a a very interesting thing. Um, The incoming uh, CEA right away uh, historically has worked with the Treasury and the OMB on putting together the administration's budget proposals. So that is really the f- you put together the forecast, you work on the budget proposal. That's your first uh, order of business. You also, as a CEA chair, have the responsibility for testifying at the Congress. It is a confirmable position. So one of the things you must do is represent, go up and give testimony uh, and talk about why, why, what the budget is and what the economic assumptions mm-hmm. are. So those Laura, are the first lines of business. Laura, help me with, uh, with corporate uncertainty. We've heard a lot about uncertainty this week from uh, the yes. folks we've talked to uh, in Davos. I know that you sit on the AT&T uh, board. Of course, there's some, some action in the antitrust space uh, there. But, but speaking more broadly just about the regulatory environment in Washington, D.C., how much uncertainty is there for companies uh, when it comes to, to regulation, when it comes to mergers and acquisitions? 
Well, I do want to say, as you pointed out, I'm, I'm here speaking for myself and not for AT&T in any way. Um, look, I think if you think about what, pre what President-elect Trump talked about during the campaign, actually he talked about the importance, in his view, of a massive deregulation, including, uh, and then a massive liberalization, including deregulation and change in incentives in energy. And then he talked about a massive corporate tax cut. Uh, actually, th those, to my mind, are very, uh, they're important. Uh, th so very important to industry, and they're waiting for some of the specifics uh, on all of those. But I think on the corporate tax cut, there is in general a view that something big will be done uh, after many, many years of talking about corporate tax reform sometime towards the uh, fall of this year, that it will take that long to get it done. And uh, but that something will happen. The uncertainty that's been added to that picture, of course, is the border adjustment issue. Mm. And that goes to the issue that I think is of greatest uncertainty for the business community. And that is, what is Trump's trade policy really going to be? I mean, is he going to go after uh, this tariff uh, increase? Is he going to support, there seems to be uh, sort of uncertainty here on border adjustment, uh, corporate tax reform. Is he going to continue his uh, technique of calling out individual companies? Don't invest in Mexico. Invest here. Don't. In if you want to serve the U.S. market, locate your facilities here. Those are huge uh, creation of uncertainty because so many U.S. products at this point have a very elaborate global supply chain, and so you could easily, if quickly, affect relative costs and prices and uh, by uh, moving in a direction of border adjustment taxes. I keep thinking about a conversation we had with Richard Edelman earlier in the week. Uh, mm -hmm. He did an anal analysis of how much trust there is in the media, right. not much, <laughs> not and government uh, as well. Yeah. How is your Democratic Party going to recognize that uh, and react to that lack of trust in government? How do we improve uh, governance and engagement with governance in the U.S.? So, so first of all, I, I think uh, I've been pointing out that one of the things the Edelman uh, construct did not uh, measure really well or did, just did not talk about uh, is the tr trust that people have in state and local governments. Mm. So I actually think that in the U.S. what you are likely to see, because there really is a fairly significant blue state, red state divide on lots of major policy issues. That So I sit in California. So let's think about uh, California and the whole energy sphere and climate change and what we do in terms of our own regulation, our own cafe standards, our own uh, energy standards in general. Uh, we are, we've always been the lead there. And if Washington pulls back, we will continue to do what we believe we can do. And there was a recent Brookings study, for example, that said there were 33 mm. states that in the period, I think it was 2000 to 2013, some, some period like that, that basically they were economizing on energy use while they were growing. So there is evidence that you can grow while you're switching to more and more uh, alternative energy. There you go. Laura Tyson there of the Haas School of Business at the University of California, Berkeley. This is Bloomberg. Again, we welcome all of you this final day of the meetings of the uh, World Economic Forum. It is a Davos that has many parts. And, of course, we spend an inordinate amount of time on the economics and the political economy, speaking with world leaders. Thank you, Madam Lagarde, for the time. Of course, John Michael Thwaites, important interview with Prime Minister May. 
But there are many other Davoses, and I can say that I've never seen a Davos where subtly and more front and center is health. One of the constant voices here over the years at Davos has been Toby Cosgrove of the Cleveland Clinic. He has been there. I, I can't believe I'm saying this. I'm doing the math in my head. <laughs> my, is it that 1975? Yes, that's correct. Right? That is remarkable. What was it like the first day, Dr. Cosgrove, when you walked into Cleveland Clinic? I was so excited. I walked in and I felt that the, it was a different character. He felt the atmosphere was different. It was innovative. It was patient-directed. It was a team play, and I was thrilled to be there. There is a difference there. I've had family members and acquaintances that travel to Cleveland. People go there. What is the Cleveland Clinic distinction versus other acclaimed healthcare facilities? Well, we have a different model of care. We're a group practice. Where uh, when I arrived there, we were 200 doctors, and now yeah. we are 3,400 doctors. That's remarkable. That's That's remarkable. We've grown quite a lot. Uh, we all have one-year contracts. Uh, we have annual professional reviews, and we're all salaried. Uh, we get straight salaries, so if I did one more heart operation that day, it didn't make any difference to my pocket. It was for the, what the patient needed. Dr. Cosgrove, great to speak with you again. Uh, hold on. i got to say, uh, David Gurr, it's like Walt Austin of the Los Angeles Dodgers. You know, they get one-year contracts. So like there you that. go, year by year by year. Tell us what, what, you're, uh, what, what you like about Davos, what you're doing in Davos, what your conversations are, are like there. What are people interested in when they talk about U.S. health care uh, just give us a, give us some color. Give us some sense of your conversations there at the World Economic Forum's annual meetings. Well, first of all, I come to Davos because I always run across new ideas, uh, and so I'm here to learn. I'm very much out of my comfort zone when I come here, uh, but I think it's very good for me, uh, particularly because I'm running a fairly large organization now, which has significant financial implications, uh, both for uh, our institution and uh, for the country and how we begin to look at health care. People are very interested in what's going to happen, whether we're going to have a repeal and replace. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about that. There's been quite a lot of discussion about uh, why I did not take the job as Secretary uh, of, of Veterans, Veterans Affairs. Yeah. Yes. And it's, it's, this, it's the second time, I gather, that you've been offered that, that job. And I don't mean to, to continue the conversation if you don't want to continue the, the, the conversation. But talk about that system in particular. We focus on reform of the healthcare system universally here in the U.S. There was a lot of attention a couple of years back on, on the, the, the state of affairs within the Veterans Affairs healthcare system. What are the particular problems there? Why are they seem so intractable, so hard to fix? Well, I think the Veterans Affairs has got a couple of uh, issues. First of all, it is the only direct service that the federal government supplies for individuals in the United States. Uh, it looks after there are 22 million veterans in the United States, 6 million of them get any care at all from the VA, and only 2 million of them get all of their care from the VA. Um, and uh, it has uh, been one of the problems is that it has been a political appointment in the past. It's been short. Uh, generally, it has uh, been someone who didn't know particularly very much about health care. Um, and the preponderance of the effort in the VA comes around health care. There are 360,000 employees of the uh, VA, and 330,000 of them work in health care. So I think it's terrific now that they're beginning mm -hmm. to look at a doctor instead of a general or an admiral uh, to run the VA. Well, that's a sea change. Your pedigree is to come out of Williams College in history to intern at Mass General children's in, in Boston and such, and then go on to thoracic, I believe, surgery. 
how are the doctors and the nurses going to be treated by our modern medicine? I get this question constantly from our listeners. Yeah, this is a big issue for us right now. And in fact, if you look at where doctors are right now, the burnout rate is 54% across exactly. the country. That's what I hear. <clears throat> and there's, there, it's very concerning. And I think there are four things that have really led to this. The first one is the loss of uh, independence. Uh, they now have to be part of teams because there is so much information and so many things to do for people that you can't just do it as a solo practice. The second one is the Affordable Care Act. <clears throat> and the Affordable Care Act now measures your quality, uh, how much, how, the cost, etc. Docs aren't used to this, and this is an enormous change. Number three is the electronic medical record. And I'm sure when you go to a doctor, you find oh, him yeah. typing and uh, looking at his keyboard and not necessarily looking at you. Doctors hate it. Uh, patients hate it. Um, and it, for every hour that you spend face-to-face with a patient, you spend two hours either with the electronic medical record or with administrative things. The fourth issue is a fascinating thing that we're going to have to figure out how to deal with, and that's the explosion in knowledge. By 2020, the total amount of knowledge in healthcare will double every 73 days. No. But I want to get to the nitty gritty here, and this goes to what David and I hear about in interviews about the uneven quality of medical care in America. You came out of UVA Medicine, you got one of the cherry fabulous internships at MGH that exists in modern medicine. Could you do that today? Is there such a knowledge stream today that the entering doctor now, it's just so daunting that they can't do what you did years ago? Well, I think, you know, I have to, I have to say that I grew up uh, with medicine. And just let's talk about the explosion of knowledge. I started out operating on everything in the chest. I did uh, heart. I did esophagus. I did lungs. I did diaphragm. If it was in the chest, I operated on it. It became uh, the body of knowledge and the technology became so uh, sophisticated over time that I wound up really just being a valve surgeon because uh, you know, that uh, occupied my entire capability, my knowledge, etc. And that's what I'm talking about with the explosion of knowledge. So we are going to have to see um, organizations like the Cleveland Clinic come together where we take the burden of all this administrative stuff off the doctor and let the doctor be doctors. Doctors are not particularly interested in being business people. Um, and my ex- example with me, you know, I was there practicing surgery for 30 years, and I never sent a bill. I never had to hire a secretary. I never uh, did a contract. Uh, I never had to go buy supplies and negotiate from them. I just looked after patients. And I think that's basically what doctors want to do. And I think the more opportunities you have docs to do that, um, the happier they're going to be. Dr. Cosgrove, you've had the opportunity to sit down with the president-elect, soon to be the, the 45th president of the United States, and talk about uh, health care. I'm curious what he said about the Affordable Care Act. I'm also curious just about his engagement with some of the uh, issues you've brought up here during our interview, about the future of health care, how it's going to be administered, who's going to be administrating it. Um, is, is he interested in the future of health care? Well, I don't think there's any question he's interested in the future of health care. He brought together four of us um, to talk about the, how we could help going forward. He brought to, uh, together the CEO of Mayo Clinic, uh, partners in Boston, Johns Hopkins, and myself to begin to have those sorts of discussions about how we could improve uh, health care and uh, aid the VA. Um, and uh, we certainly plan on trying to help him uh, going forward uh, with our input. Very quickly here, in the limited time that we have, uh, amid the conversation about repeal or replace, all of that, uh, what do you want to see preserved? What has worked about the Affordable Care Act? What do you want congressmen not to lose sight of? 
Well, I think we're headed in the right direction uh, because we're moving from volume on the one hand to value on the other hand. And that really uh, begins to put the, the uh, right emphasis on how you take care of people. Uh, much like it didn't make any difference how much sur- cardiac surgery I did at the Cleveland Clinic, I got paid the same. Mm. If we're taking care of a patient, we're trying to keep them healthy, we're uh, not trying to run up the bill for, or do extra things, that is good for the patients. So that's that's the good part. I think that the and you've seen quality improve across the country. You've seen access improve across the country. The one thing I think everybody's concerned about is the ex- uh, exploding cost of health care. And there's really only two ways you're going to contain the cost of health care. The first is you have to have a more efficient delivery system. And, you know, one of the things we suffer from right now is a cottage industry with lots of hospitals independently. If you begin to bring it together. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Please come back when we're in New York. Toby Cosgrove, this is Bloomberg. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. There was a celebration in economics recently over the announcement of the Nobel Prize in Economics to Angus Deaton. It may not be a name that you know, but you should know. He is, I believe, the most ruthless economist alive today. He has been fearless about being apolitical in simply studying private and individual events and thinking about them in the greater economics. Professor Deaton joins us here in Davos and comes ensconced in an historic bow tie. This was from your great mentor, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. Sir Richard Stone, who was the first person who showed me what it really could be like to be an economist, who looked at the data and was fearless. And to come over somewhat like Gary Becker of Chicago to look at the micro data, James Mead, Richard Stone, Angus Deaton, and bring it over to a social good. You are focused now on the death rate of middle-aged men in America. It's why actually, is that? It's actually middle-aged men and women. Excuse um, me. And it's whites, mostly. And we just stumbled over this by accident. No one seems to have noticed it. But since 1999, um, the mortality rate among white middle-aged Americans, both men and women, which has been falling for 100 years, has taken a reversal and is either flat or rising to date. Do you know why? We know the causes um, or the immediate causes that people are dying from opioid overdoses, um, accidental poisonings, which Mm -hmm. is drug addiction. Um, People are dying from suicides, which are rising very rapidly. And people are dying from alcoholic liver disease. And Anne Case and I, who've been working on this, call these deaths of despair because people are killing themselves quickly or slowly. I think of Senator Moynihan, Daniel Patrick Moynihan's historic work on gin and the effects of uh, the gin rage, if you will, of another century in time and place within the United Kingdom. If we look at opioid, and good morning to all of you within the geography where this seems to be so painful, West Virginia, over to Cincinnati and such, that's not the East Coast, that's not the West Coast. Can you link 
this medical tragedy, this drug tragedy, right back to economic prosperity. It's harder than you might think, and it's also much more widespread than you think. It's true that West Virginia and Appalachia, Maine, Florida are among the hot spots here. But if you look at the maps of this, where the deaths are, they started in the southwest and in Appalachia, and they've now spread right through the United States. So this is a huge problem everywhere. Mm. We've been trying to link it to economic prosperity, and there's got to be something there, but it's not so easy to put your finger on it because African Americans mm. and Hispanics who've had pretty bad economic outcomes right. too over the last 20 years, their mortality is falling like a stone. And right there, David Gura, is classic Angus Deaton. <laughs> That's why a guy like William Easterly at NYU calls him brave. David, jump in here, please. Uh, yeah, I wanted to ask you just about the, the moment that we're at today, uh, this inauguration in Washington, D.C., all that's led uh, to it, uh, the, the, the rise in populism, a debate over uh, uncertainty, what comes next. There are people here in the U.S. who feel disaffected, who, who feel like they haven't been taken care of by Washington. Dovetail that with, with your work. Are we at a moment here where inclusion is going to become something that politicians have to take more notice of? I think that's undoubtedly correct. And one of the themes here in Davos is, uh, I sometimes joke about it, that everybody's using the same words they used before, like growth, productivity, technology, but they're putting the word inclusion in front of them. Um, it's very easy to say that. It's much harder to know what you could actually do um, to address this problem in a serious way. I mean, and those people were very angry. They're very upset. They voted for Donald Trump. One can only hope that he'll deliver for them. I wanted to ask you just lastly, we have limited time here. I wanted to ask you about uh, what happened in December. You were knighted. You're now Professor Sir Angus Deaton, yes. uh, a high honor. Tell us a bit about the ceremony and, and yeah, that, uh, how you reacted just, to it. That just means he gets a better seat at Princeton yeah. Hockey. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I don't think it's so hard to get seats at Princeton Hockey as it once was. <laughs> Touche. Um, but it was a wonderful ceremony. You know, we've been watching The Crown on Netflix, and then it was like wonderful being in show. the movie. Yeah. Um, you go up those steps, um, you kneel down, in, in my case, in front of Prince William, and he hits you very gently with a sword um, that belonged to his grandfather, I think, George VI. And it's just very grand, and many people are involved in it. So it's this great connection between the royals and the awards, not just to knights, but lots of people, like, you know, giving it for services to karate in Brixton or something. There's this real connection between the community and the monarchy, which is wonderful. What a freshman. Kind of, well, we're going to have to leave it there. I'm sorry. We are out of time. Professor Deaton, thank you so much. We look forward to speaking to you. Thank you for in having New me. New York. Uh, Angus Deaton of Princeton from New York, from Davos. Stay with us. This is Bloomberg. It is a short visit this moment with a gentleman who personifies one are you of referring the to my size? No, no, it is a short moment. Angus Deaton was just in, so that was a tall moment. But uh, it is a short moment with Sir Martin Sorrell uh, here at Davos. So let's get right to it. I want David Gurra to join us as well. There are two kinds of panelists at Davos people that wax philosophical and pontificate everybody into sleep. And then there's a guy like you that gets up there and he gets fiery and it gets incendiary. What's the fire this year? What's the thing on the panels that makes people lean forward? Uh, well, I think discussion about what Trump means mm. one way or the other and what Trump means for the U.S. economy. And then more puzzlingly, I mean, it's more 
black swan territory, what he means uh, internationally. Uh, the second thing is, can China fill the va vacuum? I was just was talking to some uh, one ASEAN politician who said uh, China will may try to, but they can't. And if they do, that worries us. And then the third thing is uh, Brexit. Is Brexit a good thing for the UK or a bad thing for the UK? I think those are the three issues that dominate it. What, one thing is, I think if the president-elect or the, the incoming president knew the, the degree, the, the market share, the, the voice share that he had in Davos, he would, be, uh, he would be absolutely delighted. Without physically being here, he mm -hmm. totally dominated the conversations. David? You've been paying attention to, to the panel, Sir Martin. I'm sure you've been lending an ear to and reading about the confirmation hearings uh, in Washington, D.C., these cabinet appointments uh, going through their nomination hearings uh, on the Hill. What have you heard from them that gives you cheer, gives you a sense that um, there will be cooler heads prevailing when it comes to issues like trade? Well, I think the honest answer is people don't know. I mean, one of the things that there are very few people here in Davos that uh, are part of the transition team, and there are people that, that were tangential to the transition team, and they were doing briefings. Um, you know, Scaramucci and Schwarzman and Liveris were all p examples of people that were, were giving briefings, and one of the things that they indicated is that the president, if he hears... Uh, good, good arguments to th things that he has stated as being his policy. He will change his mind. He will reverse his direction if he finds he, he's not a reader, but he does talk to a lot of people and he has a lot of verbal communication with people. And if people make cogent arguments, or what he believes to be cogent arguments, uh, he will change his policy. So there's a lot of uncertainty. He's got some strong people in the cabinet. Uh, or proposed in the cabinet uh, who will have strong points of view and not used to being told what to do. So clearly uh, there may be some uh, rigorous uh, debates and some big debates inside cabinet, and there may be some, some different differences of opinion. But net-net, but I think CEOs are positive about the U U.S. economy, particularly in the short to medium term, meaning two to three years. Some believe, like me, that there might be an inflationary driven, uh, deficit-driven Keynesian-type boom and that that will come to an end maybe or be under pressure in front of the next election. But internationally, it's all bets off. It's really uncertain. Mm. uncertainty. Al Gore made the distinction between risk and uncertainty. Risk you can sort of attempt to manage. Uncertainty is very difficult mm. to deal with, and that brings us back to black swans, and that's the big issue. We were talking with David Lipton of the IMF about the future of globalization. Uh, there have been conversations about a post-globalization society, deglobalization. That's in the economic context. Put it in the business context. In your world, is there a worry about the end of globalization? Well, we're, we're, that's where the international uncertainty is. I mean, if there is, there's already been a contretemps with Mexico, Mexico is suffering. Uh, some people here think Mexico is already a failed state or is in danger of a failed state. I think Luis Vidigaray has now been re reappointed or brought back as Secretary of State, and I understand he's in in New York trying to repair repair the damage. You remember he was the, the stimulant to Donald Trump's mm. visit to visit, uh, yeah. Peña Nieto uh, in Mexico before. So that China, uh, what's general trade relationships in various parts of the world, this attempt to rebalance trade and relationships right. is a real problem. And, and globalization, the next billion consumers for our clients are not going to come from the U.S. or Western Europe. They're going to come from Asia, Latin America, right. Africa, Middle East, and Central Eastern Europe. Very importantly, we don't spend enough time talking about the modest success 
of the wire and plastic products company since 2008. I believe you can't make money in stock 25.6% per year. Is your gravy train going to continue? And I say that with great respect for the digital change of the industry. Is the next eight years like the last eight years? I'm not. I I am concerned about transforming our business from a digital point of view. It's already 40% digital, Tom. But we're we're very focused on that. And I think the biggest thing I worry about and in fact, ironically, Donald Trump is important in this. His policy, his philosophy is explained as he looks at the U.S. economy. It grew under President Obama by 1.8% compound per annum over the eight years. He wants to up the growth rate. The way you deal with inequality populism is growth and jobs. That's the key. So in a way, if you can get the U.S. economy up that to three, 3 or 4%, that helps. But the biggest problem we face is our clients operate in a world it's not their fault they operate in a world which is slow growth three and a half to four percent nominal low inflation or they will get inflation in the u.s and the uk because of the devalued pound but low inflation no pricing power and as a result a focus on cost it's the focus mm-hmm. on cost that is the virus if i can put it that so strongly it's the difficulty nobody's not enough people are focusing on the top line and that's where you succeed. You don't cut no. your way to success. To leave it there. Sir Martin Sorrell. Thank you very much. Thank you. David Gura in New York, Tom Keene in Davos, Switzerland, for the annual meetings of the World Economic Forum. We're joined now by a man who was president and CEO of Kellogg, later chairman of Kellogg as well, former U.S. Secretary of Commerce, now chair of the Albright Stone Ridge Group. That's Carlos Gutierrez. He joins us from our Bloomberg studios in Washington, D.C., here on this inauguration day. Thank you very much for your time today. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Good to be with you. Take us back to when you were going through your confirmation hearings. It must be a draining time, a busy time. You're trying to come to terms with what the policy priorities of the administration are going to be. Uh, you're trying to get your biography straight as well, I, as ima- I imagine. What's going through your mind? What's going through the minds of these uh, nominees as they testify on Capitol Hill? Well, the, the interesting thing, of course, is that uh, none of them have been confirmed yet. So uh, I'm sure they're waiting to hear when their vote will be and waiting to hear of any confirmations. But that is a bit different. I I had the advantage of coming in during a second term. So... Uh, There was an infrastructure in place. Uh, The whole executive branch was staffed. Processes were in place, and and that was a big advantage. The disadvantage for this administration is they have to create it from scratch. Uh, There are still a lot of positions that are open, but but basically they're going Mm -hmm. to walk into an office in each agency and and try to find a way of doing the work. And in many cases, they're going to find they don't have the right... Enough people yet, so well, it, it's it's a lot different than coming in in a second term. Secretary Gutierrez, there are a number of important quotes I've seen in the last week. You had one of them, and you said, "I don't care if you ate your flakes at Kellogg's or whatever. When you get to Washington, it's not the same as working in Grand Rapids, Michigan, or wherever it was. All these CEOs and fancy guys he's hired." maybe other than the generals, have to adjust. How hard was it for you to adjust? Well, you know, I I suppose that what helped me was that my expectations were uh, were adjusted. They were fine-tuned. I, I didn't expect to come to Washington and show everyone how it's done. 
So I think uh, a little bit of humility is always good. Uh, yes, there are some things that don't work as well in Washington as they do in the private sector, but actually there are some things in Washington that work pretty well. Uh, there are some career people, many, most career people are extremely talented, uh, hardworking. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's, a, there's a big opportunity uh, to do it right uh, but humility, I mean, you, you, you can't, it, it's just too complex. You know, if you have a board of directors of 13 people in the private sector, you come to D.C. and you realize your board has 535 people, the House and the Senate, and half of those don't want you to succeed. So it's a very, very different environment, and I, I, I think it would be minimizing the complexity, and I think it would be a mistake to come in without at least a touch of humility, knowing what you don't know and surrounding yourself with people who will keep you out of trouble. Secretary Gutierrez, um, I, I wonder what this administration is going to mean for the relationship between companies and corporations in Washington, D.C. We've seen the tweets coming out often early in the morning, singling out companies in specific. I imagine there are executives who perhaps don't live in fear, but are in fear that they might be the subject of those, of those tweets. How is this going to change the way that companies interface with Washington? Well, you know, it's an interesting question because on, on one hand, there is a sense of, of hope among uh, the private sector. We've all seen the stock market done. It's done quite well uh, since, uh, since the election. And yesterday it was up quite a bit. Uh, so, you, you know, it's a little bit of, uh, of, of uh, two sides to this. I, I don't think any company in in the country wants to get a tweet from the president. Uh, and I also don't think that that method is sustainable. So we're going to have to put in place incentives so that people want to keep jobs here and want to bring jobs here. And that's going to be tax reform. So for right. me, that's probably the single most important thing the president-elect can do right. is tax reform that uh, that incentivizes investment. Uh, Secretary Gutierrez, help us here with an update on how thick the Mexican wall has to be <laughs> based on your lifelong experience. Do you think that we know how high it has to be, but does Mr. Trump need an eight-foot thick wall or does he need a 20-foot <laughs> thick wall? Well, you know, I, I think that is the, uh, the, the wall itself is a big is a big issue, and I think from here on, you know, enough has been said. I think from here on, it's how this is done. If we're going to build a wall, uh, how do we actually do that? How do we convey that to the world? Are we really going to make Mexico pay for it? Can you do that in a way that the Mexican president doesn't lose face? We have to remember that there is a presidential election in Mexico in 2018, and we don't want to create the conditions for a, an anti-American populist to rise up and, uh, and be elected in Mexico. So from here on, we just have to be uh, very conscious of how we do things mm. and how we do it in a way where both sides feel like they kept face and, and we didn't totally bully Mexico. 
um, that that would be uh, that would be something that would come back to haunt us. All right, Secretary Gutierrez, thank you very much. That's uh, former Commerce Secretary Carlos Gutierrez joining us from our Washington bureau. He, of course, was former president and CEO uh, of Kellogg as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.